Welcome to The Table. You are listening to the Kingstown Communion podcast with lead pastor Michelle Matthews. The Kingstown Communion is a new United Methodist Church existing to gather people into communion with Jesus Christ through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. For more information about upcoming events and opportunities to serve, visit our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Kingstown Communion. We're glad that you're listening along with us. If you live close by, we hope you'll join us for worship in person. And if you ever feel so inclined to help us by giving financially, you can do so on our website, kingstowncommunion.net. This is from 1 Corinthians um, 15, 1 through 8. Now I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, or siblings in Christ, the good news that I proclaim to you, which you in turn received, and which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaim to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you, as of first importance, what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. And then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. As to one's untimely born, he appeared also to us. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So um, for those of you who are new um, to us, we are um, in, a, in week seven of what was supposed to, no, week, week eight of what was supposed to be a six-week series, um, but yay, um, we, we just keeps going and going. I promise next week it's going to end. Um, but we, this series we have um, named Wordle, and it's really a series to answer all your questions about the Bible. Um, what is the Bible? Who wrote it? Uh, what about all the contradictions and all the moral dilemmas and all those kind of things? And so today um, we have had a word, a five-letter word, sometimes six if Michelle got it wrong, um, letter word that has kind of defined the week. And today's word is, um, is truth. Uh, if all of these things that we've talked about are true, if, you know, Moses didn't really write the, the Torah, and if the letters of Paul should really be thought to as letters to somebody in somebody else's mailbox, and if the Gospels really aren't written by these particular people, but maybe there's also another author named Q and all of that, and if there are moral dilemmas, and if there are contradictions, if all of that, then what on earth is true, and what is real, and what, whose word can we trust? Before I answer this question, though, um, I would like to start off today by looking at what is not true. What, what do we know that we do not need to trust, or believe, or take as truth in the Bible? 
And to start here, to do this, um, I'm going to actually sneak in like three more answers today to some questions asked during the Ask Me Anything series that I never got to before, so I'm going to sneak in some extra answers for you. You're welcome. Questions I thought were probably not like full sermons, but that all makes sense for this topic of like what is true. The first question is perhaps the question that made me giggle the most when I got it. Um, And it's not the first time that I've gotten this question. However, it's a question that normally comes from children during a children's message. Um, The adult in our congregation put it this way. Dinosaurs. Like, where do they fit in creation? (laughs) You can see now why I probably couldn't preach a whole sermon on that. Um, But the multiple children who have asked me this question, usually during a children's message, for all of you all to hear, they normally ask something like, Pastor Michelle, were there like dinosaurs on the ark? Which is a good question, right? Now this child and that adult who asked this question, we can suspect are people who have in some way been introduced to the Bible or read the Bible in some way, right? There, there was a creation story and then a few chapters later there was a flood and though Genesis doesn't mention dinosaurs, Science does, right? Yeah. And, and we can visit their fossilized remains at museums of natural history. And we know, like Noah takes two animals of every kind onto the ark. And so curious and a bit confused children and adults reason that there must have been dinosaurs on the ark then. But the curious five-year-old then thinks, but seriously, how would two of every dinosaur ever fit on the ark? That's ridiculous. And wouldn't the dinosaurs have eaten all the other animals? (laughs) And all the other people? (laughs) And then the skeptical adult may not ask these questions, but what's behind uh, Nicole's question that made me chuckle is really, (laughs) it's a great question, is really someone who accepts, what's behind her question is someone who accepts the scientific consensus on the age of the earth and the timeline of various life forms on our planet and her mind, and in her mind, the answer to this is simple. As it is for all of us, dinosaurs became extinct 65 million years ago. Homo sapiens did not come on the scene until around 200,000 years ago. And so no, there were no dinosaurs on the ark. (laughs) But let's broaden this question now. This question about dinosaurs and creation and the ark is really a question about about what we believe is true about the Bible, right? What is real in the Bible? What am I supposed to believe is real and whose word can I trust? Which gets me to the first thing that's not true. The first thing that we don't need to trust and that's that's the historical accuracy and timeline of the creation story and the flood. And that leads us to opening up our mind to the fact that perhaps there are other stories too we do not have to believe are historically accurate. 
to spend time counting on how old the world is based on how long key characters in the Old Testament lived or to cling to the seven days of creation as this holistic creative work of God and to trust in the story of the flood and search for archeological evidence to support it until we go mad. As an explanation for the mass extinction usually attributed to the Ice Age, all of this is to treat these stories as something that they were never intended to be treated as. The stories of Noah and the flood and Adam and Eve and the garden were not meant to teach us the ancient history of Israel. They were intended to teach us something about God and to teach us something about ourselves. If we ask, are these stories true? As in, are they factual? As, as they are, are they historically accurate? The answer is a resounding no. They were never meant to be. But in, the more, in a more important sense, are these stories true? We can answer, yes, they absolutely offer us truth. Because the creation story teaches us profound truths about the care and sovereignty and creative nature and, and original intent of God and the dangers of seeking to control our own lives. And because the Noah story teaches us that God grieves at the brokenness of our world and wants, wants to renew it, wants, wants to renew us. We read last Sunday that passage when God looked at the violence of the earth and it grieves God's heart, that text says. Another translation is God's heart was filled with pain. What an incredible thing to learn about God, that God's heart can be filled with pain like our hearts are filled with pain. Okay, so that was the first thing. First thing that isn't true or real or factual in the way much of the church has understood it. And so first, no, we do not have to believe these stories actually happen to believe in the God of the universe about whom we teach. Uh, number two, the next thing we do not have to believe is true about the Bible comes from another question from our series. The question was actually worded this way. Are wives supposed to be subordinate, subservient to their husbands? Which is really a larger question of what does the Bible say about women? And am I supposed to believe that? Or if I've heard it before, or what am I supposed to make of that? In the summer of 2013, newly elected Pope Francis met with a bunch of reporters and responded to their questions. The world was anxious to know more about this Pope's views on the wide variety of issues like this one in particular. And one reporter asked the Pope what he thought about the possibility of ordaining women, which is a long way from, you know, it's a long way forward from our wives supposed to be subservient to their husbands. But he was asked this question, and he noted that day that women are important to the church, and there is a need to develop a greater theology, he said, related to women. But then he responded clearly and directly with reference to the ordination of women. The church has spoken and says no. John Paul II said it, he said, with a definitive formulation, and that door is closed. The no of John Paul II, he was referring to, was a letter that came out in 1994 to the bishops of the Catholic Church, 
in which the Pope gave a clear and definitive declaration that women could not be ordained. And John Paul II quoted Paul VI, who had offered the, the following reasons why the church does not ordain women. The example recorded, this is what he says, the example recorded in the sacred scriptures of Christ choosing his apostles only from men, the constant practice of the church, which has imitated Christ in choosing only men, and her living, test, um, her living teaching authority, which has consistently held that the exclusion of women from the priesthood is in accordance with God's plan for his church. For these reasons, I write this letter. The central argument here is that Jesus did not choose any women when choosing the 12 apostles. That's, I mean, it's something to note. Therefore, Jesus must have felt that no women should ever be ordained as a pastor or a priest because simply when it comes to at least spiritual wisdom, they are subservient to men. It is true that Jesus had, had women in mind as Jesus did work and spoke and taught and preached. But it, is, Jesus, is this what Jesus had in mind? Or was he choosing his apostles maybe based on who might have the greatest likelihood of receiving a hearing and becoming accepted leaders in first century Judaism? Speaking of first century Judaism, let's, let's talk about that. Let's talk about how it was steeped in 18 centuries of patriarchy. Women played an important role in society and particularly in the home, but they were clearly subordinate to men. In fact, the first century Jewish historian Josephus wrote this, the woman says the law is in all things inferior to the man. Let her accordingly be submissive, not for her humiliation, but that she may be directed for the authority has been given by God to men. And then out of that came a morning blessing within the Jewish tradition that originated from this quote, not in the first century, but then not long after that, that is still said by some Jewish men every morning as they wake, blessed are you, O God, king of the universe, who has not made me a woman. And for many conservative churches, it is not Jesus, that Jesus did not choose a female apostle that, that keeps them from allowing women to serve as pastors or even lay leaders in their church or continues the teaching of complementarianism that subordinates the wife to the husband. Instead, instead in many churches, they use what the apostle Paul wrote in supporting the way they view women, like our scripture... Like our scripture this morning from 1 Corinthians, there's another scripture in 1 Corinthians. As in all the churches of the saints, women should be silent in churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be subordinate, as the law also says. And, and then in Ephesians, another part um, under Paul, wives, submit to your husbands, just as Christ is the head of the church. And so where does Paul get this? Um, well, he gets it from the creation story often interpreted that Adam in the end must rule over Eve because of her poor judgment and leading them to eat the fruit. And with all beautiful things, it can teach us about God and ourselves. Yes, the creation story can, but it is clear that in this story, 
That male domination and, inferior, and, and superiority and the inferiority of women was a result of the sin and the fall. That's, that's what people can take from it. Thus sparking this tragic new relationship through the rest of the Old Testament. Where a woman is, is worth half of what a, a man is worth in the Old Testament. And our ceremonial... Ceremonial, ceremonially unclean for 14 days after they give birth to a girl, but only seven days if they give birth to a, to a boy, and are counted as the property of their husband and where fathers are allowed to sell their daughters into slavery, and where in Judges 19 there's a story of a man giving away his virgin daughter to a group of women, or sorry, to a group of men, rather than handing over a male stranger that's staying the night in his home. It's easy to see that the Old Testament view of women was one of subordination and, and male dominance and that the, the first century incorporation of women in the church under Paul's in, interpretation of scripture and the law was steeped in this view. And so is it true that the Bible is full of evidence of the subservience of women? Yes. Yes, it is true. But is it true that this was how God ordained it, how God designed it? No. The greatest testament to how God uplifted and enlisted women is found in the resurrection story itself, where the very first witnesses of the gospel, those charged with sharing the good news that would change the world and form the church, were women stumbling upon an empty tomb. Finally, before I get to our scripture today and answer that question, um, what is true? What is real? Whose word do we believe? Let me tackle one more thing that is not true as it relates to the Bible. And you're asking me of questions. Um, you joined us last week. I alluded to this on the screen in a list I gave of the many various things that the Old Testament says people should be put to death for. Also in that was like persistently disobedient children. <laughs> That was all of yesterday. Um, and also, <laughs> one that has like gotten much more airtime than the rest, which is homosexual relationship. And so I, I say homosexual only knowing fully when I say this word. Um, it's completely antiquated. But I'm using it because it's the word that we find in scripture. It's the only word we find. Um, and even scripture really just speaks to like relationship with men. They don't speak to relationships of any other kind. The queer community in all its diversity is not something the biblical writers would have had the language to write about, so they didn't. But speaking of language, what, what, precisely, what precisely did Moses have in mind when he made commands about a man who lies with a man, which we know now likely Moses didn't even write this, right? So whatever. What did he have in mind? Well, there is no record in the Torah of two men seeking to share their lives together as companions and lovers. Zero record of that, ever. And there are only two instances in the Torah of men lying with men as with women. And, and those two instances approximate to examples of, of forcible rape, often between someone of power and someone of less power and also are situated within larger passages that have nothing to do with that and more to do with women and what, how should a, women act, a woman act and then therefore the result of that patriarchal idea, how should a man act? 
And so the third thing is that is not true. And that we at Kingstown are abundantly clear about in the way we live this out in the world is it's not true that loving queer companionship is against the will and way of God. So if we don't have to believe these things to find truth in the Bible, we don't have to believe those things. And yet we, we still come to a church where we read the Bible. All these things we've said throughout the entire series that Moses didn't write the Torah and that much of the New Testament would be treated like someone else's mail and that we don't really know who wrote the Gospels and that humans put the Bible together for very human reasons and that, and that the Bible is filled with contradiction and moral dilemma and that still we believe that it's inspired by God's Spirit. Then what on earth can we believe is true? Whose word can we trust? A lawyer, a lawyer friend of mine said to me in, a, in the courtroom, when witnesses disagree, I know there is a problem with the testimony. But then he said this to me. But as I read the Gospels and notice that they disagree at, at many points regarding exactly what Jesus said and did, the general testimony is consistent, and I can't help but trust their witness. Which brings me to our scripture today. What is true? Whose word can we trust? Paul says, it's this gospel which we can trust. It's by this gospel that you were saved. This gospel that is of first importance. You remember when we talked about the Old Testament and how the, um, the, he the Hebrew people ordered their books in the Hebrew Bible based on importance? Here you go. Paul says super clearly what is of most importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, and then after that he appeared to five hundred of the brothers and sisters of that time, and most of whom are still living, though some, he had to say, have also died at this point. And then he appeared to James which was important to say because Paul and James disagreed a whole lot. But Paul made sure to say he even appeared to James and then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me and to you and to you and to you. What is true? What is real? Whose word can you trust? This, this story, this testimony of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that's what we cling to. That's what we trust. The gospel writers were not simply writers of biographies of Jesus. They were writing gospels, which means the proclamation of good news. They, they wrote not as historians, but as Christians who were committed followers of Jesus Christ. In other words, they were biased. Of course they were. They were telling the story of one they had come to believe was the Messiah, and they brought their unique perspectives to the task of writing it, what they each found especially compelling about Jesus, and they wrote with the needs of their unique readers in mind. Each set of readers different, each congregation, like each congregation is different on a Sunday morning. And it would be easy to understand why a secular historian or a liberal scholar would read the Gospels and, and discount their, their historical reliability. But, but let me today 
interject a few comments or answers about why an intelligent person would find it reasonable to trust in, in the historical reliability of the Gospels. First for me, besides all the other evidence given throughout the series, is the willingness by Paul and the other first century gospel writers to suffer and die for their testimony and convictions about Jesus. And yes, I know, the willingness to suffer and die for one's convictions does not prove that these convictions are true. Terrorists will die, right, for their convictions. But at the very least, Paul having once been a Jew and a persecutor of Christians, Paul's willingness to suffer and die for his convictions is testimony to the depth of his faith in Christ, which I find compelling. Said another way, I think it is unreasonable to think that Paul, a well-educated Jewish Pharisee, would have devoted his life and, and suffer beatings and go through imprisonment and ultimately death to something he knew to be just a story or a, a myth passed down. And the other main reason why I believe an intelligent person would find it reasonable to trust in the historical reliability of the Gospels with and besides all the rest we've learned. And I get this as highly subjective is the personal experience of persons I know who claim to have an encounter with Christ and whose lives have been affected and transformed by, by faith in Jesus. I count myself as one of those, right? The best parts of my life have all been somehow connected to the decision to believe the witness of the Gospels and entrust my life to the God of Jesus Christ. I'm a better human, I'm a better wife, I'm a better mother, I'm a better boss, I'm a better friend, I'm a better daughter because of this conviction that I have. I know that. Does this prove the reliability of the Gospels? Of course not. People of other faiths also report how, how their own deeply held convictions shape their lives in positive ways, right? But I can only say that the gospel Jesus preached, the life he lived, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the grave, formed the story that I hope defines my life. The gospels are, are the story, and, and as we read them and listen, listen to this story of Jesus and trust this story, it, it becomes our story too, right? I'm going to end it there. Would you pray with me? God, this uh, understanding the Bible is messy. <laughs> the thing I know, God, is everything that is truly real is always messy. If it's too good to be true... We often doubt it. And so why, God, when we get a text that is so not too good to be true, so riddled 
with errors and complications and, and things we're supposed to be believe actually happened and things we're not supposed to believe actually happened and, and, and moral dilemmas and contradictions. Why, God, when we're given that text and how real it really is to the way the world works, why, why is it so difficult to trust? I, I, I believe it's probably in the way that we have been told we're supposed to view scripture. And so God deconstruct that idea for us that scripture has to be this imperfect or this perfect. <laughs> that scripture has to be this perfect thing from a perfect God that it has to be spoken directly from you. Deconstruct that God so we might actually engage with your real word that is real for our lives today. God, I pray for people who are going through a life that is uh, it's getting real right now. They're having to make hard decisions. They're having to, um, to make relational decisions, financial decisions, health decisions. I pray for all those people in our congregation who... Um, who are going through something that is so raw, so honest, so just real. We ask that this good news would be real for their lives right now. And that we, God's people, would respond in a real way to them. In the way that they need. We pray this in the name of Jesus who taught us to pray. Our Father who art in heaven hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Table of the Lord.